The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 3, Episode 4 of The Americans, Dimebag. In this episode, we're going to talk about fake IDs, Stan Beeman tearing it up, and of course, Yaz. In addition to Joe and Joel, my bosses, we're going to be talking with the writer of this episode, Peter Ackerman. So, hi guys, how's it going? Hey Molly. Peter, why did you put that really upsetting Love's Baby Soft commercial into this episode? Yeah, that was sick and demented. What's, What's wrong, wrong with you? Yeah. I mean, how could you not put that if it didn't go in? The, I don't know why it's not in every episode, frankly. <laughs> um, it's amazing that that's real. It's shocking. Have you been I mean, sitting on that one a for a while? Is that one that you've been like just waiting to, or did you seek that out? Like I you wanted in, something in. Can you describe it? First of all, just describe it for like our one listener who doesn't know what we're talking about. There is this basically psychotic commercial that played in the early 1980s. Uh, Love's Baby Soft Oils uh, had a lady who was dressed in like some kind of babyish negligee licking a gigantic lollipop, <laughs> which sort of says it all right there. And uh, at which the voice they had to say more. <laughs> right. That wasn't one would think you could just cut. From I that think the sound. company's note was too subtle, too subtle. Go go further. What's the actual the actual dialogue is something like um, "There's nothing sexier than a baby." I think that's the line. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's genius right there. That's like <laughs> madman genius. There's one person nobody can resist, and that's a baby. So love made baby soft with the innocent scent of a cuddly, clean baby. That grew up very sexy, informing bath, body lotion, body powder, and body mist. So innocent, it may well be the sexiest fragrance around. Love's baby soft, because innocence is sexier than you think. For your baby, at Christmas. So Philip and Elizabeth have to watch this at the same time that they're contemplating having to exercise some spy mission on a young lady. We first thought we were going to use this in season one when they were kidnapped by the CIA and tortured. But yeah. uh, <laughs> instead we saved it for now. But I don't understand. Was something so different about America in the 70s and 80s? That it was okay to have a commercial that said there's nothing sexier than a baby? How, I mean, I was alive in the 1980s. I don't remember our whole culture being so different that you would say that. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, it also, frankly, is a question of, of gender roles, I think, and how women were perceived in a kind of softness maybe that was still being advertised as like and – and also an, maybe an infantilizing of women a little bit, like equating the fact that there's something sexy about this sort of – babyish woman just licking a lollipop and that's all you could ever desire i respect you enormously for trying to answer my question seriously <laughs> i feel it was an unanswerable question i was gonna say i'm so confused that peter's taking your question seriously i don't know what's going on i've never seen that before well the truth is we just thought it was so outrageously interesting and it seemed to resonate well, so richly with the rest of the stories that were happening for us but it's sick it's insane and that and it's also that which, well, is, which is what works for us if something resonates deeply with our stories and is sick and insane. Right. Yeah. That's true. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for us. Uh, so that brings us obviously to the Kimberly story, which is this great parallel to what's happening with Paige, but is also sort of a test of Philip and Elizabeth's usual spy methods. We've seen them before decide to honey trap people, use sex to get information. And now they're working with an incredibly young asset, but it's a very important mission. How, when you guys were first talking about the story, did you start to discuss how 
how this would work for Philip and Elizabeth operationally, and of course, how it would run parallel to this page story. Well, I, I think what we liked about it from our early days of walking and talking about it was that it would be hard for Philip and hard for Philip and Elizabeth, and it would provoke all of these things. I think one of our fears with it was how close it would mirror the stuff that they're going through with Paige. And we wanted to find a way for that to be interesting without seeming pointed. It turned out, I think, to be, in a lot of ways, an easier story for us to tell than for us to explain to some of the people who we had to tell it with. I think there were times when we had to really bring people on board more than we normally do and explain to them that that we weren't intentionally being as you were so, saying, sick and, and twisted, but that we actually had something that we wanted to say and explore. And that ironically, if it was comfortable, if we did it in the comfortable way, the story wouldn't work. Well, we put, we put Philip clearly on a very dangerous line. And anytime you do that, really no two people are going to perceive it exactly the same. So the, so the thinner that line is, the more interesting the story is, but the more you're going to have trouble with people having all different perceptions of it. What did you think when you, when you first started thinking well, we about a, the story? We also had a lot of debates about like, whether it was a Lolita story or was not a Lolita story. Like, how aggressive is the girl? And, uh, you know, a teenage girl can be quite aggressive with a guy. And uh, how willing or not willing is Philip? If Philip is not willing, uh, is he having to seduce her or is he having to pretend to not be seduced by her? Obviously, those stories happen. I mean, obviously, we all have a genuine and understandable fear about, you know, inappropriate relations with minors. At the same time, we also know that through history, there have been issues. The reason we have this fear of it is because it happens all the time. And there is sort of an interesting question of how complicit is the kid in this situation? By way of insight into our writing process, on the one hand, this is a story that, Joe, you and I had been talking about from very early days. On the other hand, it went through so many iterations and reiterations between us, then in our writer's room, and then as one of the benefits of us getting so far ahead on scripts, before we started shooting, we had several of these scripts written, and we did one of our pencils down, sent people away, broke it all into separate scenes, rebroke the story, sat down in this room here and talked it through, came up with different approaches. I remember one day we met in the, in the writer's room, and, and everything was whiteboarded, which is something we did very little of this season. But this story, the emotional arc of it, was something we all explored a lot. Yeah, I think that's true. And also, you're right. It's interesting when you get episodes ahead, when you're actually ahead of schedule, which is so amazing, you can then go back and comb through everything and create a, you know, an episodes long arc where so that you're not repeating yourself so that you're building dynamics at certain points. Um, and sort of Nah, that's really all I have to say about that. <laughs> that was great. I was gonna say, that that I, is Joel's favorite thing to hear in the world. I, was I do in. like being ahead. I like being ahead because you can do that. I wanted to go into kind of like a car clutch brake and accelerator metaphor. What is Joe? Joe, what do you call this? What do you call this? Singing Joel's song? Singing my song. <laughs> Speaking of singing songs, Yaz, guys, great Great pick. Peter, you had that in from the beginning, right? Didn't Only that come you? out of your childhood, Peter? That your teen did, years? Because my sister, who is two years older than I, who is basically Paige's age, is my like clue. I would just like to say for the record that I am exactly Henry's age. I am Henry. My sister listened to Yaz, okay? It was going to be like Yaz, Thomas Dolby. I mean, there's a, like to me, there was that kind of electronica that was happening in the early um, 80s, which was so famous. And, these, and I have to say, you guys are awesome because we had to clear some big songs because, of course— you know, Yaz has some kicker-ass songs, and then they have some slightly less kick-ass songs, and you really want the kick-ass songs, and it turns out they're often more expensive. 
Imagine that. Who knew? They yeah. were pricey, but they were worth it. We and went to the mat. The, one of the things in my marriage is sometimes on these late nights, I get home and get to watch producers' cuts, different versions of the episodes with my wife. And when we watched this episode and that song started to play, boy, there was a big smile. Mm, and uh, yeah, that was, that's, that's Peter from, Ackerman. One of these little songs, there are a fair number on the show that I didn't like then and I love now. I just, I remember that song being on the radio then had no appeal to me, and rediscovering it now, I think it's fantastic. And to those of us living through it, it's so satisfying Like just to, just to hear the click of the tape cassette and watch someone find the song with a counter that was on the tape cassette, <laughs> go to the right numbers because you want to play the song for your friend. It's just all about nostalgia. Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. wanted to use this song, Only You, in season one. And uh, one of our post-producers, or PJ, somebody said, this, this isn't out yet, do you want to do that? And it was, that was like the beginning of the precedent setter of, no, we're only going to use songs that would be out at that moment. If you're a month off, Alan Sepinwall yells at you. Yeah, and that's basically what you just set out to avoid every day. Write a good story is sort of the number one priority, closely followed by don't get yelled at by Alan. (laughs) You don't want to be yelled at by him. That's what killed my emoticon uh, thing last year, because we were a month off from being able to use the first original emoticon. That was, was, I think, one of Peter's hardest, hardest moments on the show. Peter's hardest moments. How about, again, Joel's hardest moment. Joel (laughs) Fields signs off every email he writes with an emoticon. Can I tell you, I get so nervous. It's only happened once or twice. If I get emails from Joel that don't have an emoticon at the end, I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm dead. My, my moments on this earth are numbered. So just to explain, so explain this moment, we were doing a story about the birth of the internet, basically, and Peter found – well, you explain it. Well, the Soviet spies had figured out a way to bug what was then called the ARPANET, which is what the military and the research universities used to pass the original messages before we all were using the internet. And so the one Soviet, Oleg, was uh, showing Nina um, – what he had intercepted from this Carnegie Mellon professor on the thing who is explaining the, the emoticon. And you see in his email, look, turn your head sideways. We found this original internet message pre-internet where he said, I think that we should start instead of writing that something is funny and mostly it's not. We can express ourselves by using a colon, a dash, and a close parenthesis. Turn sideways. You'll see what it looks like. And, and they it was, even figured out the frown. He said, look at it this way. Yeah. It was, <laughs> and his name, I think, was Scott Fadiman. Scott Fadiman? Anyway, we wanted to immortalize him so much. Scott, if you're listening to this, we're so sorry. Peter, we put, had Peter to stick put with the date. The script, but it was a and it was a really funny scene. It, where it was, he tried to, it let's was, be honest. Let's be honest here. Let's all be honest. He tried to slip it by us. <laughs> I did. He, he fact, knew. I you knew. You knew. And then we said, we said, Peter, the, the dates don't line up here. Wait this, a minute. This hadn't You're... happened yet. And, and he, he looked down at his feet and he shuffled a little bit and he said, I know. I was just, I love it so much. I was hoping we could use it. Well, you're skipping the part of the story where your whole world came together and you were like happier than you I was been. very, very happy. But as soon as I saw the dates didn't line up, you know, I, now we know what happens when an immovable force meets, uh, 
unstoppable whatever, whatever date. When an unmovable force meets a terrible metaphor, is that what this <laughs> is like? That's right. Is that what's happening right now? I, think I just lost my Writer's Guild card. <laughs> oh no! Well, another similar but different moment of you know trying to make sure that this plot point sticks to the period or a piece we want to use in a scene is we had that a little bit with Kimberly's fake ID in this, which was a huge research albatross for me, I know, because not all state IDs at this time had photos on them. And it was different from D.C. to Virginia to Maryland. Yeah, we kept moving that scene, moved from state to state. It had to take well, place. And the, and the drinking age was different, too. And actually, I think, Peter, you added a line for him where he says, like, why don't you just go drinking in D.C.? The, and some of them were grandfathered in. It was became very confusing. It was really complicated because it was around that time that the national drinking age was being passed, which is his uh, disguised character, Jim, his whole backstory is that he's a lobbyist and all of that. But what was great is our prop master, Duke, found all these amazing actual IDs from different states at that time. And poor Duke, he was like, but can't they get their fakes from New York? New York has such beautiful IDs. <laughs> no, we can't do it from New York. That doesn't make, doesn't make sense for the story. The lesson that I took from that is that as a teenager at the time, you should really live at the epicenter of three different states. Very <laughs> Because helpful. then you can choose where you drink depending on your actual and age. And totally easy to do. You know, what I remember from fake IDs was that it really depended on just – going somewhere where they didn't care that you had a fake ID. I mean, mine was made out of like construction paper that I glued a picture of myself to. It had nothing to do with it being at all credible. With a picture of your grandfather. (laughs) And to think, you went on to work for the CIA. (laughs) That's that's my early training. (laughs) Okay, well, why don't we talk about Elizabeth's line to Philip after they have this argument about the Yaz album and whether or not it's a birthday present, which, as Joel likes to call it, a great marriage fight. You are one of the only people I know that gets really excited about petty fights between spouses, only, mostly on television. Only fictional only ones, fictional. I'd like to say. For the Hasty record. to add. Hasty to add. I thought we were going to talk about a present together. I just told you it is not a birthday present. Then what is it? Oh, give me a break. What is going to church and singing hymns? Spending time with my daughter. Oh, that's what you call it? What do you want me to call it? I like spending time with her. Do I want certain things for her? Yeah, all parents do. You know what most parents want? Good college, good marriage, good job. Well, that's a fine list. Yeah. Just because you want to do nothing does not make it right. Oh, so you are doing something. It is happening. It is just happening, Philip. And yes, I am. I am doing it, with or without you. You know, we talk about breaking the story down episode by episode. What was it like to approach that moment and knowing what that means for them going forward? Well, the fun thing of writing for these guys is you get to moments like that, and those kinds of of scenes are rewritten endlessly up until you shoot them, basically, because we want them to be, and they, Joel and Joe, want them to be just right. But the funny thing about working for these guys, what happens is we have these, they have these incredibly articulate explanations of exactly what each character is saying (laughs) to the other and why, and then they're like, but they can't say any of that. (laughs) And so then you're just like, you're writing and you're like... Uh, beat, <laughs> beat. <laughs> we have like pages of beats. Um, we take a because, lot of dramatic pauses. We're, we're like, now we're now shooting six page scripts basically. <laughs> we're heavy into subtext. Um, so they are they are at this incredible peak of their in a way battle for the soul of of Paige and in a way battle for their own souls as parents because. You know, they each have a point. And I think that's the other thing that, that you talk about Joel's commitment to these kinds of marital discussions. I think what's so strong about it is that he's committed to both sides of the argument. 
which must make it just hell to be married to Joel. (laughs) But to work for Joel, it's very effective because you actually have both sides of a scene. So they each have good points. I mean, Elizabeth really, you know, she does feel like our daughter needs to know who we are. And there's something that's just true about that. And that is very weird and fucked up that the daughter, that they are living this lie and that Elizabeth almost can't bear it anymore. And Phil's point of view is our life is so fucked up. Why would you put that burden on our daughter? Which, of course, is also a completely reasonable uh, point of view at this time. And so when you get to the scene, it's almost too much to say in text, you know? So it's like you guys are right, basically. It does have to come out in subtext in the sense that, like, my favorite playwright to get super pretentious is Chekhov. Because in Chekhov, basically someone's having an argument about a bookcase, and you realize they don't give a shit about the bookcase. They're talking about their entire life for three generations and, like, why or where their grandmother came from. And that, I think— at, at, is what we aspire to. But it is such a, it's a great moment because they've sort of been having this chess match with the two of each other and moving around their various positions. And finally, she just kind of cuts him off and says, this is, this is what's going to happen. Well, and or she's, what she's really saying is it's already happening also. And the other thing that's funny about you guys and, and I think effective is that we as the writer will come and we'll say, well, which is it? Is Elizabeth operating on page right now? Or does she really just want to get close to her as her mother? And invariably they're like, both. And you're like, great, but so how do I write that? You know, I think that's one of two or three moments this season that are have something very specific about them and, and cut to a lot of what you're talking about, Peter, which is that Elizabeth realizes what's happening in the moment she says it. It's not that she doesn't know what she's been doing, but she doesn't necessarily know it entirely or understand it as fully as when the line comes out. Well, that's interesting. That's something you talk about a lot about the characters, too, in that reminding us they're not Americans who live in 2014. You know, they are Russians from who were, you know, came of age and had their consciences shaped in the 60s and 70s. And so they don't express themselves on the nose the way we do about everything. And they may not even realize things that I think we who are sort of in a certain way hyper-therapized at this point feels very self-aware and sometimes kind of meta-self-aware of every moment. The Jennings don't. And you're right. So sometimes it's not that they're planning this argument. It just comes out and they have a revelation in the moment. Well, so for all of this planning or not planning and having revelations, they are then completely blindsided by Paige in this episode when she – orchestrates, I would argue, a a little bit of a weird birthday dinner for herself (laughs) uh, by inviting Pastor Tim and his wife over and sort of sets her parents up in a brilliant way to say that I want to get baptized and they can't react. And so then for all of their fighting, they're pretty squarely on the same side at the end with like, what the hell? She totally trapped us on that one. So, and again, both a parenting and an operational moment where you actually realize as a parent sometimes you're planning all this stuff for your kid and then your kid is three steps ahead of you. Not that I wasn't also best friends with my rabbi as a small child and <laughs> invited him to many birthday parties. I think what's great is that Paige sort of pulls an operational move on them and totally puts them in this position really smartly and, and manipulatively where they, they can't really – say no. And it's another great moment where like, it's great that Paige's teenage outburst that drives her parents insane is Christianity. And that that's what is slowly pushing them over an edge. Well, also the distance between manipulation and integrity is not very far in this case. Paige is expressing exactly what she wants in the most careful, safe way she can find. And at the same time, she's also outplaying her mom and dad. So Stan's growing suspicion of Zenaida comes to a head in this episode 
I really like the scene as someone who grew up in Jersey, always at diners where they're sitting there with a huge menu. What is tuna melt? Uh, <laughs> is, is a wonderful moment for me. Does that look like a real Jersey diner? It's, uh, I mean, it shouldn't. It should look like a Virginia diner. <laughs> now that <laughs> I, know I think that, about it. That felt like a trap of a question <laughs> that I will not answer. Uh, so when he sees her basically leave the table, go up to the bathroom, walks past the vending machine, which has the Milky Way bars in it, which she's been obsessed with, but she doesn't notice. So that puts another idea in Stan's sort of growing suspicious mind. Wait a minute. There's something else afoot here. Could she have been leaving a dead drop? Could she have been meeting with someone? Something like that. And um, there's a great scene, like you said, directed by the great Tommy Shlami once again. He comes storming back to the diner after hours and just tears the bathroom apart. I just love, first of all, that scene at the beginning where he goes up and he slaps his badge on the window. That's a scene you've seen in 100,000 TV shows and movies where the guy shows his badge. But I've never seen it quite that way where you never you just see the badge slapped on the window all from behind and you just see the hand it was totally new i'm just so excited shot that sequence so perfectly and noah performed it so perfectly that honestly the first time i saw the director's cut i thought for a moment stan was going to find something (laughs) i thought how are we going to write our way out of this box he's going to find something did tommy put something up there I also thought he might have hurt himself when he fell off when oh, he yeah. fell down. I was well, like, something I knew, went wrong. He, he talked. He, 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 he that one. He talked about what they were going to do with that toilet paper roll. But you're right. Even then, you're worried he was going to hurt himself. Yeah. Well, and of course, that bathroom, Peter. Why don't you talk about where and how we shot that bathroom? Uh, yeah, we they built the set to order, and Tommy they really choreographed it so that I mean that was an amazing moment. Also, when I first saw, I remember the the toilet paper dispenser go, and you're like, oh, his groin. <laughs> At least that's what I thought. I don't know. I think that a lot, though, no matter what I'm watching. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, his groin. <laughs> um, it's like Marsha Brady. Oh, my nose. <laughs> I knew you were going to find a way to do that a third time. I had some well, sort of rule, isn't it? Before she rule. said, oh, my nose, <laughs> she said, oh, my groin. <laughs> that was the writer's draft of that line, actually. We just lost our last podcast listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mom just turned it right off. <laughs> but wait, something really good is coming up. We promise. Well, that's such a suspenseful scene, um, partially because it's the way it's shot. And like you said, Noah gives such a good performance. I love that shot, particularly where he lifts the ceiling tile ever yeah. so slightly. And you, you see his just his eyes kind of peeping up there. But it's a really kind of propulsive scene after coming off of, you know, three episodes where we've had big action set pieces and car chases and bone breaking. There isn't something quite like that in this episode, but we have these smaller moments of like, tension and emotional moments. Well, for Stan Beeman in particular, those moments, there was a moment like that last season, actually, where tearing apart a room becomes kind of like what Stan needs to blow off some steam because Stan is so repressed and so quiet and so much crap is happening to him constantly. That there, like last year when he tore apart the garage, when he finally came in and he has in this crappy little garage and he can't slam his door properly. And it's like, he just can't hold it in anymore. And interesting, it often happens when he's alone and Noah is really great at it. Cause you, you do get the feeling of that man. Just like, there's a certain amount where he just has reached his limit and he just needs to let it out. But he always has to be alone in a set that you can beat the crap out of. <laughs> in a set that you can build and then quietly destroy. <laughs> Just to draw the line completely, you were Henry's age in 1982, but you're Stan's age in 2015. <laughs> Interesting. Coincidence? <laughs> and my son's name is Stan. Oh, Weird. what does it mean? What does it mean? All right, I'm sick of you guys. Let's get out of this. That's her Edward R. Murrow sign-off. Joel, can you do your sign-off? 
I'm Joel Fields, and we don't have time for this. That, thank you. That was it. <laughs> we always have time for our podcast listeners, but we've run this out of time. Not- we've got episode 213 to polish. 213? 313. Take We're going two. backwards. We're oh, going backwards. Oh, God. We're always polishing. That's very unconvincing. We've got episode 313 to polish? That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like we got yeah. plenty of time for some more podcasts. You know what I'm here to say? We're in a good place today. Let's be honest. We're in a good place today. Episode 8 is coming together nicely. We just had the table read for episode 11. Then why is Joe I'm already Joyce running Bergen. out the door? That's not Joel Fields. <laughs> Get out of here, guys, and I'll just do these. <laughs> Thanks, All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. That's it for this week. Thanks again to Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg, and Peter Ackerman for joining us to talk about episode four. Next week, we'll be here talking about episode five, Salang Pass. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks again for joining us.